Hello, welcome back to You Know What I've Been Wondering. I'm Sarah. I'm Jane. Back in the attic. <laughs> attic attack. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> we'll not have this in three months. Maybe we will. I don't know. An attic? Yeah. When this is over. Oh. I mean, I mean, it'll in exist. three months. In three months, we could still be here, but yeah, I was gonna say, don't be too quick to assume anything. <laughs> What's three months? It's May, so it's May. August. No, right now it's May. No. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're exactly three months away from your birthday, actually today. Oh yeah, exciting. Wow. Spent a lot of twenty four inside. <laughs> <laughs> we did. That's for sure. Yeah. Not that I'd really spend that much more time outside <laughs> otherwise, but like, you know, daily commute. Yeah, free. A little bit of adventure. Right, going to see people. Yeah, exactly. Going out. It's a lot of inside. It's a lot of inside. Like we should get a rebate. <laughs> Just to show how much inside time we have. Yesterday we were outside for not that long, and it was late in the day. It was like four o'clock, and I got a little sunburn. Oh, really? I don't know if I showed you. It's on my shoulder. Oh. Or maybe it's the other one. Gross. Yeah, we walked, I mean, we walked in the sun for two hours, yeah. you know? It's a good... It doesn't hurt or anything, but I definitely, like, noticed that I had redness on my shoulder this morning. I was like, oh, oh. Wow. The sun exposure. I know. I should wear sunscreen. We have to retrain ourselves to it. We're all going to be paler. <laughs> we are. There's going to be some people with some really bad self-tanner tans. When, oh, yeah. <laughs> when we get to summer. I'm looking forward to that. I need some comedic relief. <laughs> I don't know. Everything's sad. <laughs> yeah. It's a hard time. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it is. And I've got no news. It's like I've got nothing to say that yeah. is exciting, progresses my life in any way. Just I'm at a stalemate. Yeah. What's that called? It's like an Irish stalemate. I don't know. I've oh, it's that. like a World War Two reference. Or World War One reference. I forget what it is. I think it's referred... No, it refers to, like, the Irish Civil War, where, like, they both were just stuck staring at each other for a really long time. But I don't remember if it was Ireland or not. It's a term. <laughs> it'd be it's funny a if it was called an Irish standoff. If Nairo, it's nobody like involved something was stalemate. Irish. Okay. I'm gonna look up Irish. I don't know. I can't find it. I'm gonna look up standoff. Maybe I'm thinking of standoff. Mexican standoff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just invented the Irish stalemate. So, there we go. You know what I've been wondering? What's an Irish stalemate? My quarantine accomplishment. I just coined a term. Mm-hmm. Should we just get started? Why not? Great. Okay, so you asked me about movie rating and the movie mm -hmm. rating system. Now, this was a, a bigger research task than I expected. I really thought it was going to oh. be like, in in the 70s, they created PG. And right. that was it. Right. <laughs> like, but it was really, like, everything I found led me farther back to something else that led me farther back mm -hmm. to something else. I know in the past we've gone to, like, BCE, so we're not going that far back. <laughs> right. We're starting... 10,000 BCE, they decided that children <laughs> shouldn't go to... <laughs> shouldn't go to gladiator fights. <laughs> No. <laughs> uh, no, in 1913 is the year we're going to start. Okay, that makes more sense. Yeah. And in that year, the government of Ohio passed a statute forming a board of censors, which had the duty of reviewing and providing all films intended to be exhibited in the state. The board charged a fee for their approval service, and they had the power to order the arrest of anyone showing an unapproved film in the state. Oh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In 1915, the Mutual Film Corporation took them to court because mm -hmm. they didn't think that was, you know, they thought that violated free speech. Okay. And there was, it went to the Supreme Court in a case known as Mutual Film Corp versus Industrial Commission of Ohio. Mm -hmm. And the court stated, the exhibition of moving pictures is a business, pure and simple, originated and conducted for profit, not to be regarded nor intended to be regarded by the Ohio Constitution, we think, as part of the press of the country or as organs of public opinion. Mm -hmm. I will say that the court demonstrated a technical knowledge of filmmaking and how it's done, and they noted the popularity of film. Yeah. But they also said that films may be used for evil. We cannot regard the censorship of movies as beyond the power of government. Oh. 
So the Supreme Court decided because of this case, and unanimously, I'll add, that free speech did not extend to motion pictures. Oh. I know. So that kind of set a precedent that the government had the ability to censor films if they wanted to. Right. In 1916, the studios formed the National Association of the Motion Picture Industry to attempt to keep films clean so that the government mm-hmm. wouldn't have to censor them. Right. Uh, they It was pretty ineffective, though. They didn't really do anything. And Hollywood in the 1920s started to, like, get real scandalous, you know? Right. Several films that were made were considered very risque, and there were a couple of, like, off-screen scandals that happened. Well, a bunch, actually, but... Notable ones were that actor and director William Desmond Taylor was murdered. Oh, I know about that one. Mm-hmm. And actress, model, and silent film star Virginia Rapp was allegedly raped by popular movie star Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. Oh. Which is tr- sad. And several religious, civic, and political organizations were all condemning Hollywood at the time, and many felt that the movie industry had always been kind of morally questionable. Okay. And they just thought it was really bad. I can see why they would think that. Yeah, and that inappropriate film content was just kind of a part of that. Mm -hmm. Like, of course there's bad stuff in movies. All the people making them are, like, morally bankrupt, and they shouldn't be in charge of giving us content we show our children. Right. So, in 1921, legislators in 37 states introduced almost 100 movie censorship bills. Oh. The studios were really worried that all of these bills together could contain hundreds if not thousands of stipulations about what was allowed to be in movies and those stipulations would be inconsistent easily changed right and it would just be way too difficult to meet the standards of all of those different bills Mm -hmm. so they thought it would be a lot easier for them to put forward self-regulation kind of like when we're talking about comic books yeah so the film studios enlisted this guy named will h hayes who would go on to be, like, a very famous guy for this reason. Mm -hmm. He was a Presbyterian elder, and he was hired to rehabilitate Hollywood's image. This was kind of similar to how the year before Major League Baseball just hired this guy named Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis Mm. to be the new league commissioner to preserve the integrity of baseball because there was a, a scandal regarding gambling in the World Series in 1919. Ooh. So... Baseball was kind of cleaning up their act, and in a way that they were kind of copying them, the film industry was like, we'll hire someone, too, to, like, be in charge of all this. Right. And Will H. Hayes was brought on board. Okay. Because of this similarity to Mountain Landis, Hayes was called the Screen Landis. Oh. He was paid $100,000 a year. Oh, my God. Now, this was in the 1920s. Today, that would be $1,527,435 a year. Jeez, that's nuts. Yeah. He was... That's a lot of money. I know. That's insane to me. He was the Postmaster General under Warren G. Harding and the former head of the Republican National Committee. Oh. And he served for 25 years as the president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distributors of America, or the MPPDA, where he defended, spoke, and negotiated on behalf of the industry. Okay. In 1927... Hayes formed a committee to discuss film censorship, and they created a list that they called the Don'ts and Be Carefuls. Oh. This was a list of 11 don'ts, Mm -hmm. which were subjects best avoided in film. Okay. And it said 26, but I only got 25, so I'm either Wikipedia was wrong or I can't count or... (laughs) I'm sure you can count. (laughs) 26 be carefuls, which were subjects that you could put in films, but you had to handle them very carefully. Okay. The list was approved by the Federal Trade Commission. The don'ts were pointed profanity, which included God, Lord, Jesus, Christ, hell, and damn, unless they were used reverently in connection with proper religious services okay. and ceremonies. Any licentious or suggestive nudity, even in silhouette form. Oh, and any lecherous or licentious notice thereof by other characters in the picture. So you can't show anybody naked, and you can't show another person reacting to somebody as if the person they're looking at is naked. Oh. Which is very specific. Yeah. <laughs> um, you can't show illegal traffic of drugs. You can't have any inference of sex perversion, and sadly, this included any depiction or reference to homosexuality 
homosexual attraction, romance, sex, or relationship of any kind. Right. Um, white slavery. Oh. Sexual relationships between races. Sex hygiene and venereal diseases. Scenes of actual childbirth, in fact, or silhouette. Children's sex organs, which I don't understand why that's like sex organs in general, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I agree that children's sex organs is something that's you should, like, definitely not have. Right. But it makes me kind of wary that they felt like they had to, you know? Yeah. Um, and the last two are ridicule of the clergy and willful offense to any nation, race, or creed. Now, that last one, it makes me feel like some of the ones higher up on the list are kind of dumb, you know? Right. Yeah. Because basically, like, all of this sounds like they're excusing racism and right. homophobia in film. Right. And then at the bottom, they're like, respect everyone. It's like, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. The be carefuls are the use of the flag, international relations, arson, the use of firearms, theft, robbery, safe cracking, and dynamiting of trains, mines, buildings, etc. Brutality and possible gruesomeness. Technique of committing murder by whatever method, methods of smuggling, torture methods, corporal punishment, sympathy for criminals, attitude towards public characters and institutions, sedition, protesting, Mm -hmm. uh, standing up against authority, cruelty to children or animals, branding of people or animals, the sale of women or of a woman selling her virtue, rape or attempted rape, consummation of marriage, men and women in bed together, Deliberate seduction of girls, the institution of marriage, surgical operations, the use of drugs, law enforcement or law enforcing officers, and excessive or lustful kissing. Oh. So those are all the topics that they're like, you can have it, but be careful. You know? It's the be careful list. Mm Mm-hmm. In 1929, a Catholic layman named Martin Quigley and a Jesuit priest named Father Daniel A. Lord... Which, how perfect is that? Your last yeah, name is really. Lord and you're... T- yeah, he knew it was calling. <laughs> yeah. They created a code of standards and they submitted it to the movie studios. In 1930, the studio heads agreed to abide by the code and it went on to be called the Motion Picture Production Code. And Hayes, that guy we're talking about, Will Hayes, he had created a studio relations committee and... It would now be their job to oversee film production and suggest cuts or changes to films so that they could follow the code as closely as possible. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't super strictly enforced. Okay. People wouldn't always listen to this committee. Yeah. They would still. So up until in, in the first couple years of the 1930s, it wasn't people didn't really listen to the code. But in 1934 they decided that they were going to really strictly enforce it. Oh. They referred to it as the Hayes Code because he was the president of the MPAA, which was the Motion Picture Association of America. The code was divided into two parts. The first set was just a general list of principles, along with the guideline that no film should go against those principles or, quote, lower the moral standards of those who see it. So basically, they, they just didn't want They were like, no one should go into a film, watch it, and come out a worse person. Okay, right. Yeah. The second half was just a list of things that you could not include in films. And it was very similar to the don'ts and be carefuls. Okay. It was, like, almost identical. You can definitely tell the difference between pre-code films and post-code films. There was a lot more gun violence in pre-code films and just firearm Mm -hmm. handling and usage in general. An example that I thought was really cool was that... In 1931, the film Frankenstein came out, and following Mary Shelley's book, Dr. Frankenstein has a very overt God complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point, he proclaims, now I know what it feels like to be God. But in 1935, the code said that they couldn't include anybody having a God complex. Yeah. So that is, so when they made the sequel, Bride of Frankenstein... The doctor, is n- he doesn't have a god complex anymore, <laughs> right. which is not at all accurate right. to the original character in right. Mary Shelley's book. The Hayes Code was in effect until 1968. Okay. Now, in 1966, this guy named Jack Valenti ca- became president of the Motion Picture Association of America, the MPAA, and he thought that the Hayes Code was way out of date and bore the odious smell of censorship. And I agree. Yeah. He didn't think it... 
it was right that the First Amendment didn't apply to films, which yeah. I <laughs> also agree with. I, I'm really on board with Jack Valenti here. He also just didn't think it was effective because he saw several filmmakers working around the code. He saw them including expressions that technically weren't on the list, but heavily alluded to words on the list. Like, people use the word screw a lot in so many films because mm-hmm. they weren't allowed to say, like, any words referencing to sex, but everybody knows what screw means. Right. And, and the phrase hump the hostess was used in one film mm-hmm. that he saw that is technically, like, not anything on the lit, uh, like, against right. the code, but it still... Implies. You know, implies yeah. something. There was also this film called Blow Up that contained nudity, and because of it, the... It was denied code approval, but a member of the MPAA released the film through a subsidiary, and it got leaked, so a lot of people saw it. Oh. So... Jack Valenti was basically like, why are we even censoring films if people are going to see them anyway? So he just thought the whole system didn't really work. So he came up with a new idea. He decided that filmmakers could do whatever they want. They could put whatever they wanted in their film, but they still had to submit their film for approval by like the committee that had the code. Um, And if their film didn't meet code standards, then they simply had to include a title card at the beginning that said SMA, Suggested for Mature Audiences. Mm -hmm. And you knew if you saw a movie that said that at the beginning, oh, this didn't meet code standards. Right. This worked really well. People really liked that idea. So in 1968, the voluntary MPAA film rating system took effect. Okay. There were three groups. The National Association of Theater Owners, which their acronym is NATO, which, you know, that exists, so maybe get a different moniker. The International Film Importers and Distributors of America, the IFIDA, and the MPAA. They would collaborate and discuss the film, and they would all agree on a rating. And this only applied to films that were made after 1968. Mm -hmm. They didn't rate any of the ones before, yeah. They came up with four different ratings. G which was for suggested for general audiences, M, which was suggested for mature audiences, parental discretion advised, R, restricted, persons under 16 not admitted unless accompanied by a parent or adult guardian, and X, person under 16 not admitted. Now, smartly, they didn't trademark the X, they trademarked the rest of them, but they just put it out to anybody that wanted to make a film that X was not trademarked, and if you made a film and you didn't want it to be submitted for approval, then you could just choose to put the X at the beginning of your film, meaning this was not approved by anybody. Okay. And it wasn't trademarked, so anybody could do it. So it didn't really mean this is necessarily inappropriate, just the committee has either not seen this or doesn't have approval. Right. In 1970, the ages for R and X were raised to 17. There was a lot of confusion about what the M stood for, so they changed that it from M to GP, which stood for General Audiences Parental Guidance Suggested. In 1971, the MPAA added a content advisory warning for GP-rated films that said some material not generally suitable for pre-teenagers. Okay. In 1972, GP was changed to PG. Right. In the early 1980s, um, there were a lot of complaints about a couple of films that were released and got PG ratings, uh, especially Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Gremlins. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. They thought that they were too violent and gory for them to get a PG rating. But they also weren't really inappropriate enough to get a rated R rating. Right. You know? So author um, Filippa Antunes said that the PG classification, quote, no longer matched a notion of childhood most parents in America could agree on. Okay. And a lot of parents, like, it was heavily debated that, okay, well, PG means parental guidance suggested, but every parent has different opinions on what their children should and shouldn't be seeing. Right. So if this is up to us, like, it's just so hard to say. Right. Interestingly, Steven Spielberg was the director of Temple of Doom, and he was an executive producer on Gremlins. Oh. And it was his idea, or he made a suggestion, that they come up with a rating between PG and R. For him. So in 1984, PG-13 was introduced, and it meant parents are strongly cautioned to give special guidance for attendance of children under 13. Some material may be inappropriate for young children. In 1985, they simplified the wording of that to just 
parents strongly cautioned some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Okay. In 1989, Tennessee randomly decided that they thought the minimum age to see rated R films should be 18 instead of 17. So only in that state you have to be 18 to see rated R films. Or they changed it in 2013, but for a very long time. Oh, that's crazy. It, it was just that way in Tennessee. In 2013, people complained and said that was in violation of the First Amendment. Tennessee just kind of was like, okay, fine. But they didn't just get rid of the law that said, in our state, the age for rated R movies is 18. They just added an amendment to the law that said, you can be 17, basically, but the state has the power to prohibit people under 18 from seeing a movie if they decide a film is considered harmful to minors. Which I, I guess makes sense, and I wonder if there have been any films that they've done that for. If it's still like, I, I, Oh, never mind. It does still exist. Um, I could see them doing that for Joker. Oh, I didn't see it. It was a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this might be the only time I ever agree with Tennessee on something. <laughs> there are a lot of people who I'm like, you shouldn't see Joker. Not even minors. Just, like, if you're not in a really good mental state, don't watch it. <laughs> Do not watch it. Okay. Uh, in the year 1990, the X rating was a replaced by NC-17, which stands for No Children Under 17 Admitted. In 1996, the age to see NC-17 movies was raised to 18, mm. but they didn't change the, the name, 17. Yeah. But they just, they changed, like, the wording of what that meant to no children 17 and under. Mm. There's a lot of specific rules about what can happen in each rating. Violence is permitted under all the ratings, but in the lower ones, it has to be moderated. There are very specific rules about language in each of the ratings. I did know that one. Ooh. In G-rated films, um, obviously, like, no swearing is allowed, mm -hmm. but you can have snippets of language that, quote, go beyond polite conversation mm -hmm. but it has to be like limited and then for pg related films you're allowed one harsh or sexually derived related word still yeah. no swearing but like yeah. i think it's interesting that like you're allowed one yeah you can have one <laughs> yeah but once you get to pg-13 more expletives are allowed but rated r movies are like they have way more <laughs> yeah i knew pg-13 you're allowed one f word um and uh. i knew that because when The Fault in Our Stars, the movie came out, they were like, okay, it's going to be PG-13, which means you only get one F word yeah. for John... For And, like, John Green books aren't very explicit, you yeah. know? But people still were like, okay, what's it going to be? And I'm pretty... I didn't see the movie, but I'm pretty sure I remember reading that, like, people were happy that their one use of the F word was that she tells off the people at the Anne Frank house or something like that. <laughs> or no, the author. She tells off the author who, oh, like, was her hero. Okay. And then he, like, he's really rude to her. I was I like, who did she tell off at the Anne no, Frank not the house? No, not the Anne Frank house. It is, it she does inconvenienced in them. <laughs> it does happen in Amsterdam, though. Um, When she goes to see the author that she loves in Amsterdam and yeah. he's really rude to her. Yeah. She tells him to F off, I'm pretty sure. And that was, like, their one for the PG-13 <laughs> movie. And everyone was like, it was amazing. <laughs> That's how I knew that. <laughs> Drug use content is restricted to PG-13 and above. Nudity is restricted to PG and above, but I think it's, like, there's probably, like, if certain body parts are showing, that makes it, like, R or more. Or right. Like, yeah. Um, no, I'm pretty sure you can't show. You can't be naked in a PG you movie. Show, you can't show female presenting nipples <laughs> in PG-13 and under. <laughs> and only in R. Sick reference. Sick to Tumblr win, reference. To Tumblr. They're female presenting nipples. <laughs> oh, this is interesting. You can have nudity in a PG-13 rated movie, but once it becomes sexual, that makes it R. Oh, okay. But, like, if it's... Okay, that makes yeah. sense, because there's that scene in Frozen when they all look in the sauna, and they're all naked. They're not, like, naked-naked, but they're oh, all curling leaves. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it's not like, sexual. I missed the nudity in Frozen. No! They're all, in, they're all wearing leaves, and they do it in the Broadway show, and it's amazing. Um, But they're all just wearing leaves. Yeah. And they're, like, in a sauna, clearly naked. Yeah. There's a lot of that in Disney movies, where it's, like, they're pretty much naked, but stuff's covered up, and it's not sexual. It's, like, yeah. a joke. Yeah. There's a lot of that. Exactly. So that's really everything I have. I didn't get into too much into like video games like you were talking about. Mm, that's fine. Other media, but I, the little I saw of it is just that it was a very similar process, but mm -hmm. like it came later because they were invented later. Yeah, of course. Cool. Thank you. Mm -hmm. 
Very interesting. I remember when Sweeney Todd came out, I really wanted to see it, and it was rated R, and I didn't <gasps> see it until it came out on DVD, but I remember that being a really big deal. Mm. I wanted to see it so badly. And I also remember when Harry Potter was coming out, there was a lot of debates over whether the last Harry Potter movie would be rated R or not, because it was so, like, a lot of people die, very scary, um... very violent. They were like, is there a way to do this without it being, like traumatic (laughs) and they figured it out and i didn't think they would make it rated r because like it is so popular you know but their their ratings it's this whole series i'm pretty sure the first movie's rated g and then it was pg for a while and then the last three or four are pg-13 it's not that you say that i know the first one i know the first few were rated pg and then starting with goblet of fire i believe it went up to pg-13 People were like, that was a really big deal. Oh, um, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone was PG. Okay. So it was PG. And then I think it's Goblet of Fire that they started being PG-13. It might have not even been Prisoner of Azkaban, but I'm pretty sure it was Goblet of Fire because of... They cut off someone's hand. They cut Goblet off of Fire is PG-13. Okay, yeah, so that's when it started being PG-13. But I remember it being a really big thing that people were like, are they going to end up making the last one rated r order because the of, phoenix is pg-13 because of the content um it was the same debate a little bit with the avengers movies as they were nearing ed game people thought maybe that they would make avengers end game rated r so that they could get away with more violence more cursing stuff like that but they didn't do it they'd made it pg-13 which i think was interesting half-blood prince is pg that doesn't surprise me half-blood prince isn't very gritty but it's just interesting that it went from, like, the first three were PG, the mm-hmm. fourth and fifth were PG-13, and then when we got to the sixth, it went back well, to Well, you want to know why that probably was? Half-Blood Prince, and I think it's totally, you can tell by the tone of the movie, was supposed to come out at Christmas. Um, mm. So it was, like, literally Christmas Day was supposed to be its release, but then, because The Dark Knight did really well in a specific week in June, they pushed back the release to June of the following year. So, and I remember seeing it in theaters in like the summer and being like this is a christmas movie like you could you could tell by the because it's like half-blood prince is a lot more lighthearted content in it it's almost like a romantic comedy in certain points i think that's why it was rated pg because it was supposed to come out at christmas time so everyone could go see it on the holiday okay so for our middle segment today my little sent me this really interesting video about who would succeed kim jong-un should he die if you don't know this um, it is rumored that Kim Jong-un is, like, on his deathbed and is really, really sick, but because North Korea being the way they are, it's really hard to get no- news, and so it's unknown if this is actually true. Um, he might already be dead. We don't know. Like, yeah. it's, like, it's really up in the air. Um, but this video is just about his line of succession and his ancestors, and I thought it was interesting to know a little bit more about, like, his yeah. family. Um, so, this is just a brief evaluation of his family tree that I got from the YouTube channel, Useful Charts. So, Kim is their family name, because in Korea, yeah. the family name comes first, yeah. if you didn't know that. That's why they're all Kim blank. Yeah. Kim Jong-un's great-great-grandfather was a commoner, actually, known as Kim Bo-hyun. His son was Kim Yong-jik, who was the father of North Korea's founder, Kim Il-sung, who is Kim Jong-un's grandfather. When Kim Il-sung was born, North Korea had become part of the Japanese Empire. This disintegrated at the end of World War II, and Korea became divided. The Mm -hmm. North was heavily influenced by Soviet communists, and the South was influenced by the U.S. So, in 1948, the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, which is the formal name of North Korea, was established, and Kim Il-sung was chosen as its first leader. Um, The Kim Dynasty essentially became a hereditary dictatorship. Yeah. Kim Il-sung ruled for almost 46 years until his death in 1994. Kim Il-sung was then succeeded by his oldest son, Kim Jong-il, who ruled for 17 years and was succeeded by his son, Kim Jong-un, in 2011. Now, Kim Jong-un was not Kim Kim Jong-il's firstborn son. Kim Jong-il is thought to have had two wives and at least three mistresses, but the exact number of children he has is unknown. His only legitimate child to his second wife is his daughter Kim Sol-sung. She served him in many capacities when he was supreme leader, but her role is unknown now. His oldest son was King Jong-nam, whose mother was a mistress. It was thought that he would be next in line, but 
And this is why my little texted me about this, and this is a crazy fact. In 2001, he was arrested in Japan at Disneyland Tokyo for using a fake passport. <gasps> he fell from favor and was therefore removed, like, not considered in the line of succession anymore ah! by his father. So, the whole reason... He snuck to Disney World! <laughs> literally, the whole reason that he didn't become Supreme Leader was that he used a fake passport at Disney World. Was it worth it? Maybe. Honestly. <laughs> I don't know. Natalie was so funny. She texted me. She goes, so I was just supposed to find that out in the dark by myself. Like, <laughs> she was watching this video on her laptop. She goes, I had to be alone when I learned that. <laughs> Which is why she texted me about it. Which is crazy. It's a crazy fun fact. Um, several years after Kim Jong-un came to power, Kim Jong-nam was assassinated in Malaysia. And I'm going to go back to that later. Kim Jong-un has a full old, older brother named Kim Jong-chul. Their mother was one of Kim Jong-il's mistresses, but she was later given a full title. I didn't write down the full title because I was typing as I was watching a video, but it literally was like supreme confidant and most trustworthy associate of the Supreme <laughs> Leader. Like it was, it's this like crazy long title. It's absolutely nuts. Long way of saying special friend. Literally. Hold on. I'm, I'm going to look it up. I should have just written it down. This is it. It's so long. Her title was the respected mother who is the most faithful and loyal subject to the dear leader, comrade, supreme commander. Oh my god! That was her official title. Crazy, right? What? Yep. Insane. Um, so, but Kim Jong-un's brother was most likely passed over because Kim Jong-un was his father's favorite. Um, Kim Jong-chul's current role is unclear, but he is known for unexpectedly showing up at Eric Clapton concerts in America. <laughs> so there's that. Kim Jong-un's final sibling is Kim Yo-jong, who is his younger full sister, all, same mother. Uh -huh. um, the two of them are very close, and she is involved in government affairs. So right now it is unclear how many children Kim Jong-un has. It's unclear! No, they don't know. It is thought that his eldest daughter is an eight-year-old girl named Kim Joo-ye, it is unlikely that she would take over in the event of his death because she is She's only eight. eight. Yeah. Maybe and might exist. Like, it's just a big maybe for... She might not exist? Like, it's like a big question mark if, the, if like, he has kids and how old they are and who his children are. What? I, the government is highly secretive and it's, like, impossible to know who he's associated with, who is, like... It's nuts. It's really... That's insane! That's why I said with his father, it is thought that he had two wives and three mistresses, but, like, we don't know for sure. That's crazy! Yeah, it's crazy because it's just that secretive. Any of his three surviving siblings are possibilities, but most experts agree that any if anyone were to take over, it would be Kim Yo-jong. But according to... This is a big million-dollar word for you. Agnatic primogeniture, which means the primogeniture is the right by law or custom of the firstborn child to inherit the family estate. Uh-huh. And according to this, that would point the succession to Kim Jong-un's nephew, the son of his assassinated half-brother, <gasps> Kim Han-sol. <gasps> but Kim Han-sol's whereabouts are unknown because there have been several attempts on his life. <gasps> And he has not been seen since 2017. This is wild! Uh-huh. Because when his father was assassinated in 2017, he posted a video, <gasps> set, like, naming who it was, <gasps> saying, like, there, and then there was an attempt on his life. Those people who tried to assassinate him were captured, but then he never resurfaced. Literally has And he's the same age as us. He was, <gasps> he was 22 when he disappeared. His birthday's in, like, June of 1995. It's, I'm shook. It's crazy. It's absolutely insane. So his succession is unlikely um, unless in the event of like a really huge dismantling of the North Korean government, especially because he would be a potential ally for the West. I think some conspirators think that like the U.S. or some other Western country is protecting him. Mm. Yeah. Kim Jong-un does have several older ancestors still alive, including his aunt Kim Kyung-hui. However, when Kim Jong-un came to power, he had her husband, his uncle, executed, so it is unlikely that she will take over. Um, his uncle Kim Poyong-il has been a career diplomat and is a possibility. Like, it's definitely not out of the question. It is unlikely that he will take over as opposed to Kim Yo-jong, but again, like, no decisions have been made, so it can't be ruled out. 
more than likely, either Kim Yo-jung, um, his sister, will be named supreme leader or a regent for one of Kim Jong-un's children. Yeah. Until they come of age. It is all, this video was like, it is also possible for everything to erupt into chaos and for the whole Kim dynasty to be uprooted and for <gasps> them to enter a period of civil war and power restructure upon <gasps> his death. That's something that could happen. Absolutely. Oh my goodness. So that is what will happen. That's in the event uh, of Kim Jong There's just death. there's a lot to unpack there. There is a lot to unpack there. <laughs> it's crazy. It's like every other like sentence you finished. I was like, "Are you insane?" <laughs> I know it's really nuts. Um, it's that whole dynasty, that whole government is just really really crazy. And then I <sighs> went down a rabbit hole of watching videos of people going to North Korea and what it's like there, and it's. It's really nuts. So there's that. Now we're going to move a little bit north in Central Asia, mm-hmm. and we're going to head to China and Mongolia. Cool. Um, I want to thank John Green and the YouTube channel Crash Course for help with this. <laughs> I did watch their video, and I watched a couple others, too. Um, and Encyclopedia Britannica helped me a lot with this. Mm-hmm. I knew quite a bit, but just, like, condensing everything yeah. was really difficult. But oh, I think sure. I did it. I think I did it. So, the Mongol Empire was founded by Genghis Khan in mm-hmm. 1206 and remained in power until 1638, although it really was only, like, a considered a formidable power until the 1350s. Okay. By the late 13th century, the empire stretched from the Pacific Ocean in the east to the Danube River and the shores of the Persian Gulf. At its largest, the Mongol Empire covered 9 million square miles, making it the largest contiguous land empire in world history. Whoa. I know. Mongols are typically painted as ruthless barbarians, which is not entirely inaccurate, but does not give credit to their speed and ingenuity in their conquest. They Mm -hmm. conquered more land in 25 years than the Romans did in 400. Crazy. Mongols were renowned for their religious tolerance and created the first free trade zone in the world, which made them an enemy of the feudal system in Europe. Oh. Yeah. The Mongols started as a pastoral society, which means they were a nomadic group that traveled with a herd of domesticated animals that they would use for food and trade. So they didn't have specific lands. For centuries, the Mongols lived in the foothills of Central Asia and were an unsuspecting group. No one would have guessed that they would rise to any sort of power like yeah. this. Yeah. Then, in the 12th and 13th century, they rose to power under the leadership of Genghis Khan. Genghis was born in 1162 as Temujin to a lowly clan. His father was poisoned to death, and then Genghis, or Temujin as I'll refer to him for a while, killed his brother. At Mm -hmm. 19, he married his wife Borte in an arranged marriage. Mm -hmm. Um, This was very common for the Mongols because they were um, just kind of a series of tribes, and arranged marriages were a way to unite tribes because they were very often at war with surrounding tribes. Makes sense. Yeah, there's a lot of infighting. Then, shortly after his marriage, an enemy tribe, the Three Markets, kidnapped Borte and gave her as a concubine Mm. to their tribe's leader. Mm. Temujin rescued her several months later and showed incredible military skill, which made him the Khan or leader of his tribe. At the time, none of the tribal confederations of Mongolia were united. Temujin sought to unite them into one Mongolia that would then overtake neighboring tribes on the Central Asian Plateau. Temujin swore himself to Togrul, the Khan of the Karates, a neighbor confederation. Togrul connected Genghis with his friend Jamuka, who was Khan of his tribe, the Jadaran. However, as Temujin began consolidating power in his conquest of Mongolia, he and Jamuka became rivals. <laughs> Mongolia then entered a period of civil war led by Temujin. Temujin was able to win this war because of two policies. A meritocracy, which was brand new, and he he just, he had decided early on that he would promote men in the military based on merit and not by familial blood, which was unheard of at the time. Yeah. Um, and also that he would absorb other tribes into his own. As an incentive for absolute obedience and the Yasa Code of Law, Temujin promised civilians and soldiers wealth from future war war spoils. And when he defeated rival tribes, he did not drive away their soldiers and abandon their civilians. Instead, he took the conquered tribe under his protection and integrated its members into his own tribe, which made them more faithful and only grew his power Mm -hmm. very, very quickly. Whereas most other places, when they took over, they would kill everybody. Most other tribes. In 1186, Temujin was elected Khan of the Mongols, and this angered Jamuka, who was at this time Khan of the Jadaran. 
Jamuka beat Temujin and Temujin was subsequently exiled out of Mongolia and he disappeared for 10 years. And we have no idea where he went. Then in 1197, he pops back up and he <laughs> aided the Karatees and the Jin in attacking the Tartars, which was a really other, like, barbaric fighting group that also existed in Central Asia. Okay. And the Tartars, I know because they invaded Central Europe at a time. Okay. Um, that's who my mom, my mom mentioned this. The Tartars were this group of people that invaded Poland and they were really short and they had this like crazy, they traveled really um. light and they carried machetes and they were like this really evil, not, not evil, but they were just very violent, mm-hmm. I will say. Um, and so Temujin went to war with the Tartars um, with the help of the Jin and he was restored to power as Khan of the Mughals, as Khan of the Mughals. As a result, by 1206, Genghis Khan had managed to unite or subdue the Merkits, the Naimans, the Mongols, the Karates, the Tartars, the Uyghurs, and other disparate smaller tribes under his rule. This was a monumental feat and resulted in peace in previously warring tribes and a single and political military force that became known as the Mongols. They hmm, all were okay. absorbed into the Mongols. Um, and then they held a ceremony called a, Kur- a Kurultai. There's a lot of ways I've heard of saying this. A a co-rule die. A co-rule die. I'll start. I'll, I'll do that. There's I've seen several different words okay. for this. And I don't quite understand that. I think it's like the difference between Chinese, Mongolian, what um, um English translation. Um a co-rule die, which is a council of the Mongol chiefs. Um and this is an election that the Mongols would have. And at this first co-rule die, Genghis Khan was acknowledged as Khan of the Consolidated Tribes and took the new title Genghis Khan. This new leadership was known as the Khan of Khans or the Great Khan. Mm-hmm. And this thus became the beginning of the Mongol Empire. Wow. Yeah. After uniting the Mongols, Genghis began conquering other territories, and by the time he died in 1227, after 21 years of being Khan, um, his empire stretched all the way to the Caspian Sea, which is where Denmark is. What? Yeah. (laughs) Crazy. China, at the time, was split into three dynasties, one of them being the Song Dynasty and the other the Jin. You might recognize the Jin because the Jin were formerly Genghis's allies in taking over the rest of Mongolia. Yeah. But now it was time to conquer that area. Um, the third remaining territory was uh, Jija. I'm pretty sure that's what it is. It's XIXIA. Yeah. Jija. Um, and he allied with them. After conquering them, he allied with them against the Jin dynasty in northern China. And when I say northern China, the Mongolian Empire was sort of in the middle of what is now modern-day China, and China was really just that coastal area. Mm -hmm. The Mongols managed to conquer the Jin capital, which was now Beijing, but back then was known as Zhongdu, and this was destroyed in 1214 but most of the Jin managed to escape and the Mongols split the Jin dynasty in half with leaving the Jin dynasty in northern China and the Song dynasty in the south and the Mongols having the territory in the middle. Um, Genghis ended up abandoning his conquest of the rest of the Jin dynasty to head east. In China, however, where he was beginning to conquer, there was this ideology of one world, one ruler. This definitely affected Genghis's mindset and almost certainly pushed him to conquer more territory. So he was very affected by this Chinese mindset. Genghis was actually very pragmatic and didn't want to conquer too much too quickly for fear it would stretch and weaken his forces. There are several examples of when he could have pushed further, but he chose not to, um, even though he did stretch his empire very far. At the time of his death in 1227, the conquered Jija refused to help the Mongols, who had conquered them, they didn't want to help the people that took over, take Khwarezm, which was now Turkey, um, and that made the Mongols very vindictive of them. Jija culture, which was a mix of Chinese and Tibetan culture, was annihilated for mm-hmm. this reason and really absorbed into Mongol culture. Um, Genghis's son, Ogadai, succeeded him after winning another Karuladai. Only Genghis's descendants were eligible, but Ogadai won without much opposition. Okay. So it's not just, like, a free thing. Anyone could run. It has to be his family. But Genghis Khan did have many children, um, so it was still considered a feat to, for him to have won. Mm-hmm. And for him to win without much opposition, because that's going to be a problem later. 
Ogodai constructed a permanent Mongol capital, Karakoram, and it was completed in 1235, which ended their time as a nomadic people. Which all through this time of them conquering all this space, they still were just like roaming around. There was mm-hmm. not like a base that they had, which definitely gave them credit because they were used to harsh weather, living yeah. outside, traveling, and that definitely helped in their conquest, having experience with that lifestyle. Ogodai saw the destruction of the Jin dynasty with the help of the Song dynasty, which was to the south of them, um, and began many centuries of war and attempted conquest in Korea, which they were never quite successful at. Ogodai died in 1241, which halted eastward expansion into Europe. The Mongols were able to conquer so much territory because of their military strategy. They rode horses into battle for increased speed and mobility, which at the time, most medieval European armies were on foot. They had synchronized fighting techniques and used archery to fight from afar. Um, Very often, they would have already taken out many soldiers before they even met, which made them very scary. Oh, yeah. They used the advice of engineers to invade walled cities, something that the Mongols were very famous for, was making sure that they had the most knowledgeable people in their council all of the time so that they weren't just going in like like sword swigging like they actually had strategy and they actually knew something about the places that they were invading it's so they just sounds smart they're very smart at this point the great wall of china had already been built and that definitely was a big problem for them <laughs> um, so they engineered things so they could get over the wall yeah. and they brought in the use of much smarter people mm-hmm. um which you know their leader wasn't afraid to be like, I'm not the most knowledgeable person about this, but let's find them. Which is really how all leaders should be. Yeah, it's very, it's not, it's, it's not insane. <laughs> it's not an insane thought. The Mongols also used spies and propaganda in enemy territories. Ooh. Normally they would ask for voluntary surrender and if accepted, the people were spared. So what they would do was that they would send spies there to find out A, what their military strategy was, but B, to spread the word being like, hey, if, you know, the Mongols take over us, it might not be that bad. Oh. Like, we should just surrender because then they'll spare our lives. And that worked. Like, a lot of people's lives were spared for that reason. Now, if they didn't surrender, yes, everybody was slaughtered. But it was a much smarter tactic and it definitely grew their population and grew their empire much more quickly because they showed, like, if you follow me, then I will protect you. Yeah. And considering that at the time the Mongol Empire was the most feared empire, they were like, yeah, I'll let the you know, most fearsome empire in the world protect me, that's fine. (laughs) So it actually helped helped them a lot. In the case of voluntary surrender, tribesmen or soldiers were often incorporated into Mongol forces and treated as federates. Personal loyalty of federate rulers to the Mongol Khan played a great role as normally no formal treaties were concluded. It was just like, you have my word and my honor. Mm -hmm. The Mongol armies, therefore, consisted of only a minority of ethnic Mongols. It was mostly made up of people whose lands they'd conquered. Oh. Yeah. It's really crazy. When Ogadai died, there is no clear heir. His wife, Torajin, ruled by common consent for five years until they elected um, his son, Gayuk, who was only Khan for two years. Well, good for her. Monke succeeded Gayuk, but anticipated a war with his brother Batu, who was the son of Genghis's oldest son. And therefore, okay. going back to agnatic primogen- yeah. primogeniture. primogeniture, um, he was thought to have a more legitimate quaint- uh, claim being the son, the oldest son of the oldest son. Mm-hmm. This never happened because Gayuk died in 1248 after only two years of, of reign. Before Monke succeeded Gayuk, um, Gayuk's widow, led by an agreement made with other notable Mongols, um, until Monke was elected three years later. Mm-hmm. So we had Ogadai, and then we had Gayuk for two years, and then <laughs> we had Ogadai, and then it took five years to elect Gayuk, who was only con for two years, and then it <laughs> took it was three years of um, the widow, and then it was more years of Monke. So it was like okay. a lot of back and forth of having like no really official con. Monke continued Gayuk's policy of religious tolerance. During his rule, French friar Willem von Roisbrook wrote of the Mongol capital where Christian churches, Muslim mosques, and Buddhist temples coexisted. It was not a problem. <laughs> and that, uh, people thought that was crazy. Um, because in Europe at the time, there were many wars being waged over well, religion. Yeah. Yeah. 
So Monkey's brother Helagu and Kublai aided him in the conquest of Baghdad. Several I've heard of Kublai. Okay, yep, just get ready. <laughs> you know him, you know him. Um, several neighboring Christian nations hoped Helagu would be the one to invade since he was seen as a protector against Islam. He was not a fan of the Muslim religion and was married to a Christian. And in fact, there were many Christian Mongols. Oh. Helagu did manage to conquer Syria and Palestine, but was blocked from taking Egypt. But he ended up spending much of his life in that area of the world, which meant that Kublai was left to lead the campaign against China. Monke did aid Kublai in his campaign, but Monke died in 1259 and another familial, familial feud broke out. Kublai then secured his election and was still, while still in China, in Kaifeng, or he was close to China, in Kaifeng. Kaifeng is right on the border of the Song Dynasty, which was the last bit of China that was left. Okay. Um, but his brother, Arigboge, claimed himself Khan in the Mongol capital, which became a problem. And Helugu was too far away to exert any influence and was not considered. The empire was then divided in its allegiance as Mongolia went into civil war. Kublai evidently won the war in 1264, um, but it came at the cost of the unification of Mongolia. Yeah, because essentially these three brothers had been fighting in very different parts of the world, and the part that they were in was the part that was loyal to them. So, the most faithful to Kublai were mostly Chinese of the previously overtaken Jin and Jija dynasties. Mm -hmm. um, so he had to adopt new policies. The Mongols were outnumbered by the Chinese in Kaifeng, which was which is where he spent most of his time. So he had to expand Chinese bureaucracy, although the military leaders were still entirely Mongolian, but the Chinese were allowed to hold other official titles. Kublai promised the Chinese would not be mistreated to earn their favor and promised to be more lenient in criminal rulings, which he did keep. Um, very few Chinese were given the death penalty. He was considered very kind to the Chinese. And he was religiously tolerant of the Chinese, especially of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. Which was a really big deal because the Mongolians hated the Jia dynasty, who were primarily Buddhist. But then mm -hmm. he was very accepting of them. So it was a really big deal. Kublai took on characteristics of preceding Chinese emperors rather than previous Mongolian Khans. He relocated the capital twice, but the second ended up being next to the, con the conquered Zhangdao, which is now Beijing. So his, his capital that he like created for the Mongolian empire was in China. All of this is taking place within about a hundred years. Yeah. So it wasn't forgotten right that like this used to be china there was still a very clear like i am chinese and you are mongolian okay it was still a very clear divide yeah. it wasn't they weren't assimilated he also secured his succession by beginning his own chinese imperial dynasty the yuan dynasty he attempted to invade japan but was unsuccessful his main target became the song dynasty just south of the mongolian empire um and the last really bit of china um since he wanted to be emperor of all of china so the song were a formidable very wealthy opponents it took until 1279 almost 15 years for him to conquer the song but he did manage to conquer and unite all of china under the mongolian empire oh yeah Contrary to former custom, he treated the deposed imperial family well and forbade generals from resorting to indiscriminate slaughter. He protected that family. And this is probably the reason that we know Kublai Khan as a person. During this time, he was visited by Venetian Marco Polo. Polo traveled across the Mongol Empire with the help of a policy known as the Mongol Peace or Pax Mongolica. This was a time of cultural fusion as visitors from the West came to explore the empire and trade along the Silk Road, which stretched the entire empire. Even though the Mongols are thought to be very barbaric, at the time it was actually considered very safe to travel into Mongolia and be along the road because the Mongols were very tolerant of visitors and guests. Um, okay. And because they wanted trade and they encouraged cultural fusion, which was very different than many other places where they're like, yeah. you have to be like us or leave. Um, so Marco Polo traveled freely through the Mongol Empire. This also gave Kublai access to the greatest minds of the age, which he used to run the empire and make it stronger. Um, Marco Polo was appointed by Kublai Khan as foreign emissary and went on many diplomatic missions on the Khan's behalf. 
Polo lived on the Emperor's lands for 17 years and documented many previously unknown sites to Europeans. Oh. Yeah. While he was not the first European to reach China, he left detailed chronicles of his, of his experiences that inspired future explorers, including Christopher Columbus. By the time he and his father returned to Venice, they were incredibly rich and had covered almost 15,000 miles of territory. Whoa. Yeah. So, as I said before, the biggest problem under Kublai Khan's rule is that the Mongolian Empire wasn't really united. The Mongols really saw him as a Chinese emperor because he spent so much time in what was only about 60 years prior, China. Yeah. So, he had a lot of trouble exerting influence over the other Mongol Khans. So, the way that the Mongol government worked was that he was the Khan of Khans. He was in charge of all of them. The Mongolian Empire was really split into four areas, and each of them had their own individual Khans that covered that area. And those Khans saw him as a Chinese emperor, not the leader of the Mongols. And he particularly had a problem with his cousin, Kaidu. Kaidu? Kaidu. Oh, okay. Him and Kaidu went in, had many wars, many fights. So, there was... Juicy. There were problems. Yes, there were problems. After Kublai's death in 1294, the empire went into a steady decline. The divided empire grew weaker as the Khanates, which were the Khans of the smaller areas, um, began to disagree more and more. Mm -hmm. They failed to create a system to peacefully transition power. Like I said before, there was once five years without a Khan. There has been three years without a Khan. There wasn't a really simple way for them to be like, and now it's you, because they didn't want to make it just oldest son of the Khan. They wanted yeah. it to be more based off of a meritocracy, which is what Genghis wanted. And they had a lot of great respect for him because he grew the empire so much. Yeah. In 1354, a rival Muslim dynasty managed to take over part of the empire because the Mongols were too busy infighting to decide who should rule and they were easily overthrown. The Black Plague also exacerbated the problem as it traveled down the Silk Road. Part of the problem of them being so tolerant of visitors was that the Black Plague spread really quickly. And the last Mongol emperor, Togon Timur, who reigned from 1333 to 1368, became emperor at age of 13. But in 1368, the Ming dynasty overthrew the Yuan dynasty that had been established by Kublai and took control of most of the Mongols' remaining land. At that point, the last of Genghis's descendants retreated into Mongolia, where they ruled for the next 300 years. And that was really the end of it, until eventually they were absorbed into other empires, which mm-hmm. then we get into a, a series where every country is changing all of the time. Yeah. Um, I mean, America's not even 300 years old yet, so... I know. So, that's, like, the bulk of the empire. Really, it all happened between 1206 and 1354. And even so, um, what's crazy is that it really all happened between 1206 when Genghis Khan was established as Khan of Khan and the death of Kublai Khan in 1294. After his death, things really fell apart. Um, so it just grew so fast in such a short amount of time. The Mongols, like, did completely shatter societies and their conquests, but they also developed key trading systems and political policies. They were exceptionally tolerant of different religions and ethnicities, making their legacy not only militarily significant, but also politically. Like, I just think that they were such an advanced society for the time that they were living in, and they were very much feared by Mm -hmm. the Europeans. Yes, because they were ruthless in battle, but also I think like the Europeans had to be afraid of how tolerant they were. Like this yeah. was all happening at the same time as the Crusades, right? Then Crusades are happening nearby <laughs> to where the Mongol Empire was. And here you have this group of Europeans fighting in the name of God, you know, yeah. while the biggest empire in the entire world is saying you can come here and you can have any religion you want. Yeah. That definitely threatened them quite a bit, you know. Of course. Especially the Holy Roman Empire, you know, also wanting to grow itself. So, I just thought that was... No, that's really... I feel like we paint the Mongols with, like, a really broad brushstroke or whatever yeah. that expression yeah, is. Yeah, yeah. When there's so much more minutia and detail that they don't get credit for. It's true. Not that I'm excusing, like, violence or anything, but I'm just saying, like, there's a lot more to it's them really that we easy. Say. It's really easy. I think I learned this with the Visigoths, too. It's really easy to see... Um, in winter's history, it's really easy to see the other team as this, like, barbaric, yeah. violent group when there was a lot that the Mongols accomplished because of wit and intelligence, not just because of brute strength. Yeah. That is 
I think everything. Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at YKWIBW Podcast. You can check out our website, I've been wondering.com. If you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us through Anchor on the link directly in the bio of this episode, or please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. And finally, if you have something that you've been wondering, you can email us at I've been wondering.com and we would at gmail.com and we would love to include include it in our show. Okay. Jean, you know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering, Sarah? I want to know about veganism. How it got started. Like, was it a certain culture or society that were vegans and we got it from them? Like, when did it first start becoming popular? Okay. More about that. Sarah, do you know what I've been wondering about? What? (laughs) You always say about, about. and I'm like, is that grammatically necessary? I don't know. I don't think it's, I don't think. Do you know what I've been wondering? What? Can you tell me a little bit more about Polish history? Yeah. Because that's your ancestry, Mm -hmm. and I know very little about it. I mentioned the Tartars today. Oh, you did. They're part of it. The Polish history is that they've been conquered a lot. Yeah, so, like, you wrote in our notes specifically the freedom of Poland. Yeah. Which I'm not, not even, like, from who? Like... <laughs> from many people. From many people. <laughs> it literally it was, like, okay, you it was the Tartars, it and then the Mongols, and then a bunch of other people. And yeah. that I don't know a lot of those middle people, but then it was the, uh, what was... What you was could Germany tell me in World War One. <laughs> Germany in World War One. Yeah, 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 was yeah. Germany, and then it was Soviet Union. Like, yeah. it was, like, it's so many... They have only been a free place for, like, the last, like, 60 years. Like, it's crazy. Um, okay, yeah, I'll tell you more about Poland Great. and if all of its struggles. <laughs> I'm going to play a little tiny violin. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much for listening. This is You Know What I've Been Wondering.